Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is Double Blind. Each week, we pick a breaking scientific study. We put it in context, explain exactly what happened and why it matters. This week, special guest star, Kelsey. Hi. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, Collision Course, how two black holes are about to have a little bit of a traffic accident. And Free Floating, a worldwide decline in phytoplankton. Lucas, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Jesse. Uh, so first of all, quick question. Have you ever heard of plankton? Yes, I have. Plankton. You've heard of plankton. So plankton in the ocean are defined as anything that can't swim against a current. Anything alive. Oh, anything alive. So uh, fun little factoid to get us started. The word planktos in Greek means yeah. wanderer. And oh, it's actually cute. the same uh, origin as the word planet. Because planets oh. were the stars that wandered through the sky and plankton are the things that wander through the ocean. That is really quite cool. Yeah. Okay. And there are if, if, there are two types of plankton, right? There's yeah. the plant and the animal plankton. Yes? Exactly. Exactly. So there's phytoplankton, which is anything that photosynthesizes. Right. And there's zooplankton, which are animals. And that can be everything from single-celled organisms to small little shrimp-like things, to many jellyfish, to larvae for bigger things. Oh, wait, wait, like fish. So, so yeah. when you say can't swim against the current, it's just that current is like too strong. Because some of those things, like yeah. little shrimp things, they would swim, but they they're not. They would swim, but they, they can't, can't swim against the current. That's, okay. So I didn't yeah. realize, I assumed that for some reason, I assumed that like the zooplankton, that's the animal yeah. ones, right? Yeah. Are, that, there, that was like a species of thing or like a particular type of organism but that it's like a it's, huge it's wide anything. Like range most, anything. most fish larvae are zooplankton oh. yeah and it's interesting that they most of them can swim up and down vertically they can control they, their height right. in the water column interesting. but they can't go horizontally so, they just sort of so fish larvae they started as plankton and then once they gain the ability to for many species not all but many interesting okay yeah. that's very very cool okay i had no idea me either Having now said that, we're not going to talk about the zooplankton okay. today. We're going to talk okay. about the phytoplankton. We're talking about the plants, right? So we care about these a lot uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're responsible for about half the oxygen produced on Earth. Wow. That's okay. a lot. We need that. Like, we credit the trees with a lot, and the trees do some good things, but phytoplankton, they're our friends. Right. Uh, they also play a key role in pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. Right. Through photosynthesis. And the other thing is they form the base of nearly all marine food chains, which yeah. often end with us. So there's a little single-celled thing floating around the ocean, and then a zooplankton eats it, and then a fish eats the zooplankton, and the bigger fish eats that fish, and then Jesse catches that bigger fish, and then eats the bigger fish, and, and then something comes along and eats Jesse. Right. Most of these are microscopic single-celled organisms, so really small. Most of the phytoplankton you cannot see with your naked eye. However, there's a lot of them out there. So many that you can often, in fact, see them from space. And, in fact, NASA has satellites that just look at the color of the ocean. Oh, so cool. they look at the color of the water and they say the more green it is, the more chlorophyll there is. And chlorophyll is what allows them to photosynthesize, right. what makes plants green. Yeah. And the more chlorophyll, then the more phytoplankton there are. Okay. Totally cool. Makes sense. Yeah. And they've got really sophisticated algorithms which just simply take a raw color value from that photo in the satellite <laughs> right. and convert it through what are called ground truth observations. So a ship goes out there and measures the plankton and right. they correlate that with the satellite. Yep. Got big algorithms for this. So 
Recently, NASA released a study which looks at and analyzes satellite data uh, between 1998 and 2012. And they feed this data into a big computer model which tries to simulate what's actually happening with the phytoplankton in the ocean. Okay. So this data tells the color of the ocean, and that just gets more phytoplankton or less phytoplankton. Sure. You can't really tell anything else besides that. Okay. But with other observations like ocean temperature, the area of the world it's in, uh, stuff like that, you can try to actually get what types of phytoplankton would be okay. more or less likely to thrive in those conditions. Which are just educated guesses based on all that other information. Yeah, totally. Right? Okay, and this cool. model takes all those and essentially creates a little ecosystem in a computer. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And so they run this for all the satellite data for all those years, sure. from 1998 to 2012. Okay. And they found something kind of alarming. They found a decline in a particular type of phytoplankton called diatoms. Now, that's a super familiar word. And yeah. I don't remember biology why they're important. Yeah. It might have been biology it's 100. It's definitely a bio 100 thing. But so, I... so diatoms are the largest type of phytoplankton. Yeah. Um, they're these, if you look at them in a microscope, they're crazy. They're these crazy looking single-celled organisms that build shells out of silica. Okay. They're like, they're like weird cylinder. Yeah. I'm thinking diatomaceous earth now. Yes. Okay. So diatomaceous earth is dead diatoms. Right. It's like the not rock, but like semi-lithified substance of like just lots of diatoms. And what do we use that stuff for again? So so there's two common things you might be thinking of. There's actually a lot of okay. uses for this. Okay. Two common things. One is because these are little tiny shards of silica, kind of like shards of glass. Right. They can kill small things. Uh, like yes. fleas on your dog. Right. Ah. So you can rub diatomaceous earth on your dog, which is sort of like a, a pesticide-free way of killing fleas. Right. Because you literally stab them to death with oh shards of silica. Oh <laughs> I did not know that's how it works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's terrifying. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that's oh, amazing. you're earth onto dog. No! No, you're... It's, oh. it's totally... It's humane. No, you're <laughs> stabbing fleas to death with yes. little shards of silica. Okay. The other thing it's used for is it's used um, because these little things filter seawater through them. They take right. nutrients out of seawater. They're very good at filtering uh, seawater. Filters. Yeah. It's used in both beer and wine production to filter many types of beer and wine cool. just by running through um, this sort of dead phytoplankton. Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. Very neat. <laughs> Super cool. So this stuff's awesome. So stabbing fleas and filtering beer. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's responsible for two of my favorite things. Beer and not fleas. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So the researchers found that over this period of time, there was a 1.2 per year percent decrease in the diatoms. Okay. So, I mean, they were also, they were also very clear that this is not a catastrophe yet. Okay. Um, they, they were very clear about this. This is not That's an great. alarmist Good. thing, but it is something that should be monitored. No other species of phytoplankton or type or of phytoplankton they could they could find had such a significant global signal. There were regional declines. Sure. For, in pretty much all species, in particular areas. Okay. And it's interesting that this is not the first time this sort of alarm has been sounded. A study in 2010 uh, looked at 120 years of data for Mm. phytoplankton. We have 120 years of phytoplankton data? Who was taking data 120 years ago? Well, you see, you got to the interesting point here. We didn't have satellites 120 years ago. From, like, journal entries from, like... Yeah, captain's log. Pretty, pretty much. Um, and but the way they did it was super cool. So like NASA's looking at the color of the water. Yeah. They looked at the transparency of the water. 
So for quite some time, ships have measured something called a secchi depth. S-E-C-C-I depth. <laughs> okay. And it's literally measured by a disc, a white disc yeah. at the end of a rope. And you put it into the water and you let the rope out until you can't see it. And then like you, you got someone like leaning over the side of the ship and they say, I can't see it anymore. And then you look at the rope because you've got knots on the rope. Yeah. Which show you how far That's you put so it to the water. Yeah. And then that's the secchi depth and that it tells you the transparency of the water so out of curiosity mm-hmm. what use did that information have 120 years ago oceanographic so this was this was still like this was the start of oceanography oh that's so cool <laughs> right i love it when we think ahead right <laughs> that might be an important bit of information one day right that's really cool it's really cool Good job past okay, but, and, but like where did i'm sorry i just have yeah, so many questions yeah, of course where did they log that information and just how do we know about it various now? places there there are people who just look for old scientific information cool. and try to like, wow modernize it and use it that's, for new things okay that's really cool yeah. very very cool we have that yeah. information that's, that's so neat. they they moved on to, um sort of mid 20th century they moved on to a different method okay um where they also measured transparency but they did it by essentially having a light meter on a wire sure and just putting that down into the water and just watching until the light disappeared okay similar principle sure um and the study in 2010 took all these psychedelic measurements and these light measurements and put them together Sure. And they found a 1% per year decrease in global chlorophyll concentrations. Wow. So, yeah, they found this similar signal of this long-term decline in phytoplankton. Wow. Now, to be clear, that study was highly, highly criticized. Yeah. I, like, I don't, I can't think of a study that I've seen that was more criticized <laughs> than that study. Actually, no, I can't. That, we talked about that. We talked about say, the study, the, um, yeah, the, the How to Change People's Minds study. Yeah. Okay. But this study was very criticized. Mainly, their methods of comparing these measurements by the disks and by the light meters were inaccurate. Are controversial. Okay. For sure. Um, controversial how? The criticism was that because these are two very different measurements, you have to figure out a way to actually compare them. You have to correct right. one for the other. Um, they said that because you're doing this over a long term, in a long term where people are using less and less of these discs in the water and more and more of these light meters in the water, that the change from one measurement type to another could show you this decline in phytoplankton. So essentially, this, this more recent study from NASA using satellite-based observations makes this earlier trend sound a little more plausible. Right. Now, the big question, of course, is why? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Now, you got to think of what phytoplankton need. What, do, what, do, what is a phytoplankton? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Kelsey's got one. Light. What else do phytoplankton need? There's one. There's three. Carbon dioxide. Yeah, there's two. Nicely done. They need nutrients. Yeah, nutrients. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. Totally. So light, carbon dioxide, nutrients. So what is particularly interesting is the balance between light and nutrients, because these are often found at different places in the ocean. Light is only found... High up. Yeah, near the surface. Exactly. Um, Because if you drop a light meter down in the ocean, it will go dark eventually. Nutrients are interesting. Because there's lots of, you know, plankton growing near the surface, because that's where the light are, the nutrients are most depleted there. Right, that makes sense. And nutrient concentrations are greatest at depth, where there's nothing to use them up. 
And they're also replenished by things near the surface dying, sinking, and then decaying at death. Right. So I'm sure there's like nutrient currents and crazy... Yeah, well, I mean, what matters is the nutrients that get mixed up near the surface. Because once they're mixed up near the surface, they're also where light is. And then plankton can grow. Right. So this happens with winds and currents and such, creating what's called the mixed layer sure. near the surface. Okay. So this is this layer of deep water being mixed up and homogenized with surface water. Okay. Um, and recently, this layer has been getting shallower, which mm. is effectively been reducing the habitat for the plankton. So that's what these authors are attributing this to. There's less of this layer there. The mixing isn't penetrating as deep into the ocean. And so there's a smaller region that plankton can live in. Okay. Do we know why? Yeah. But why? But why? Yeah. So was, so why? So it's complicated is, is the answer. Okay. And we don't, we don't fully know why. Changes in wind patterns and temperature uh, are the key factors to this for so this sure. This is a climate change thing. Yeah. This is likely something to do with climate change. Jeez. Everything comes back to that. So yeah, this is definitely something that could could be a signal of climate change. Interesting. Um, the authors, once again, are very clear. This is not a catastrophe. They're not talking about climate change. They're cli- climate change is a catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> they're talking about, totally they're talking about <laughs> these, these, these the declines in phytoplankton. Um, this is not a catastrophe, but it is something that we need to keep an eye on yeah. and continuously measure. It, it could okay. kind of be the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Canary in a coal mine or a very slowly dying canary. Just another right. symptom just, of like, the giant it's a problem. Of a flag, right? yeah. but it's it's not... a little bit of a flag at this point. Yeah. And like, I mean, if something, if the phytoplankton stocks get devastated, that's that's more than like a precursor to something. That's really bad. Yeah, that's huge. But yeah. it's like the base of all life, ocean life. Pretty much. Right? Yeah. But it's not happening yet. That's not happening yet, but it's something we don't want to happen. So we right. should. Okay, so we won't, we won't all die. This is not, the whole thing is that this is not an alarmist thing. It's, so it's not an alarmist thing at this it's, point in time, it's but not it's good. very interesting, and we should keep it. We're going to keep it. Sure. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks, Lucas. No worries. So now it's time for the abstracts. A couple quick headlines from stories that we don't have time to go into in depth, but think you should know about because they're pretty cool. Lucas? Half of medical school graduates are women, but the fraction who are professors is dramatically less than men. 28% of male faculty have full professorships, but only 11.9% of women. Now, this discrepancy is really interesting, has not improved since 1980. Wow. So the academic gender ratio has not improved since 1980. Interesting. That's 35 years. Wow. We reported a couple weeks ago about how researchers had genetically engineered yeast to produce opioids. We yeah. That was a big study we talked about. So... As of last week, researchers have now engineered yeast to produce THC. Wow, they're is, doing this for everything, yes, aren't they? Yes, for everything. As it turns out, we're really, really you good at... bread out of this yeast. <laughs> yes, this is baker's yeast. This is real baker's yeast, and now it can produce THC, which is the active uh, component of marijuana. So that is going to, you know, potentially have implications in the future. Who knows? So the problem with the opioids was it was so inefficient. Yes. You needed an obscene amount of yeast to produce a very, very mm-hmm. little amount of opioids. Is it any better for the THC? It's a little bit better. A little so bit better? it's not quite as the... I recall you needed... It was like 100,000 times. It was millions of loads of yeah, bread. It was, it was yeah. obscene. Yeah. 
Okay, so we're gonna do a space story here, you guys. Space, in, space and physics time. I'm gonna tell you this, the little bit of backstory here. All right. Um, so back in 2014, way back in 2014, if you can remember back that far, a year ago, George Jorgovsky and Matthew Graham were two researchers at Caltech. Okay. And they were analyzing data from the Catalina Real-Time Transient Survey, or CRTS. Uh, okay, sure. And I, since you don't know what that is, nope. I didn't either. Um, the CRTS is a group of three ground telescopes in the United States and Australia, which are continually monitoring about 500 million celestial light sources across the sky. Whoa. Covering 80, 80% of the sky at once. 500 million. 500 million sources of light. Wow. It's, it's an unprecedented amount of different distinct light sources that we're scanning at once. It's a pretty incredible thing. Mm-hmm. So they're, they were looking at a bunch of data from that survey. And they were doing a standard study of quasar brightnesses. Okay. So um, they were looking at the variability in the brightness of quasars. What's a quasar? That is the big question. What is a quasar? A quasar is an extremely bright object in the sky. They were first thought to be stars, but then when researchers looked on closer inspection, they found that they had really broad spectrum emission lines, which is not how stars tend to work, and that they could be up to 100 times brighter than the whole Milky Way. So they didn't match, aside from what they initially looked like visually, they did not match what stars do in the sky. So they're not stars. Instead, they are quasi-stellar objects or quasars. That's where that comes from. Oh, I didn't realize what the name was. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually contentious up to the late 80s what they were. Okay. But only recently has there been scientific consensus on it. And Mm -hmm. we are at that point now where there is a consensus that a quasar is a compact region in the center of a massive galaxy surrounding a supermassive black hole. Okay. So when we talk about quasars, we're really talking about the area around the black hole that's emitting an obscene amount of light okay, and electromagnetic radiation in general. Yeah. So they tend to be anywhere between 10 and 10,000 times bigger than the radius of the black hole itself. Wow. Okay, it's so like this is... like dying gasps of light as they fly into a black hole. I, well, I still don't really understand quasars. So, well, it's, it's because when you say something like quasar, you, you expect that you could talk about it as a single object like you can a star and it's not a it's not really a single object it's a large area that's emitting electromagnetic radiation right um in this case it's like it's like the name for a phenomenon rather than the name for an object yes it's it's a source it's a light source It's, it's a radiation source it's an observation yeah yeah exactly specifically what what we're seeing is around a black hole you may have heard of the term accretion disk yeah and so that's basically all of the mass uh, that is not yet in the black hole that's flying around it incredibly fast, mm-hmm. right? And that that assorted mass from stars and nebulae and whatever that gets sucked towards the black hole begins to grow extremely hot. It turns into plasma, and that releases a huge amount of radiation, and that's what we call a quasar. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's that's the idea. Cool. So it's a... It's a it's an unusual phenomenon to explain. It took me a while to actually figure it out because I was looking for like, well, what? But what is it? But what is what is the thing? It's a quasar yeah. in the sky. It's well, no, it's it's this phenomenon yeah. of the accretion disk having all of this hot plasma that's throwing out electromagnetic radiation. Okay. okay so it's, in my mind, I'm thinking it's kind of like something like aurora borealis, which is not really an object. It's just like a thing that you're observing. Yes. Okay. It's. Yeah, I mean, it, it is composed of this accretion disk mass. Right, yeah. So, so there's, stuff yeah. is happening, there's stuff happening, but it's not there. like a 
an object that you're like, this yeah. is a thing. Okay. Uh, it's it's a it. quasi stellar object, right? That's the whole idea. It's 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 a spaces there, confusing. A, there is a bunch <laughs> of stuff in the sky flying around the black hole really fast, yeah. throwing out electromagnetic radiation because it's crazy boiling hot plasma, and that's a quasar. Thank you for explaining it that way. Yeah, I feel a lot more okay. comfortable with quasars now. Okay, Excellent. so uh, because of the black holes that they contain, we mm-hmm. will t- we actually talk about the quasar uh, in encompassing the black hole as well and so uh in a lot of the reading i found they talk about um the number the, the consumption rate of the quasar of how much mass it's taking in the black okay, hole in the center yeah. in mm. terms of earth's per minute oh that is <laughs> the best is unit ever it's my favorite new unit so the largest known quasar consumes 600 earths per minute do they, whoa do they say epm <laughs> I haven't heard EPM yet. Like BPM, but EPM. But it's it's just the amount of mass, right? So the amount of stuff that's getting sucked in there, the amount of mass is equivalent. Ten Earths per second. Ten Earths per second. <laughs> so oh, that's that's upsetting. Into this black hole. Okay. So that that's what a quasar is. So let's go back to um, George and Matthew, our researchers, who we were talking about, who were just observing this, this general um, light data. They were looking for... Um, just standard brightness variability in quasars. They wanted to just learn a little bit more about how the brightness varies in quasars. Sure. Um, And they discovered something very unusual in one of them. They discovered that the light emanating from a quasar that's called PG-1302-102. Yeah, that one. Sure. There's a lot of them, and we don't bother to give them names. Right, just numbers. They discovered that the light that was coming from it was doing something very strange. And that very strange thing is that it was behaving in a very ordered fashion. Oh, it was ordered in what way? It was pulsing yeah. in a routine, recurring, cyclical way. This was a really strange observation that they found because yeah. quasars normally tend to chaotically change their brightness levels because there's really no telling what's going to get sucked in at any given time. Right, sure. And what, whatever's being currently sucked into the black hole tends to be what accumulates in the accretion disk, tends to relate to how much plasma there is and how much light's thrown at. Okay. So normally it's a really chaotic variations in light, and this was regular and recurring. Yeah, okay. So this quasar, PG-1302-102, we'll call it PG-13. <laughs> Sounds good. I like that. Yeah. So PG-13 is in the constellation Virgo. Yeah. And it's about 3.5 billion light years away from Earth. Ooh. Long way away. Yeah. And they were, they were observing these periodic regular changes in brightness. Sure. Which is super unusual, right? Normally, yeah. it's, normally it's totally chaotic. They found that the pattern recurred every five years, and that when they looked at the brightness levels across the spectrum, it looked like a perfect sine wave. Whoa. And that's something that's never been observed before in a quasar. Okay. So, here's a question. Yeah. What do scientists think when they see changes in the spectrum an object is producing? What type, or shall I say color of light, is being thrown at? Well, well, they think something about it moving towards or away from us. Exactly. If it's redshift or blue shift. Yes. So that is what they were observing. Because the spectrum was changing in very specific oh, oh, ways. Oh, wait, stop. I know. I know. I okay. know what this is. Yes. It was It was orbiting something else. So it was re- regularly moving. It, it was moving in a circle. Yeah. And when it was moving in that semicircle where it moves away from us, yep. we would see it being uh, red shifted. Yes. And then in the semicircle moving towards us, we'd see it being blue shifted. Yes. Dang. Now, Good job. Like, seriously, 10 points. So, first of all, it's important to note that um, all quasars exhibit redshift because of the expansion of the universe. Yes. 
Uh, so should we explain this at some point? What it, what is redshift? What is blue shift? Yeah, let's yes, explain that right now. Okay. We, we just really started talking about it. Yeah. So Lucas, why don't you explain first of all what redshift and blue shift are, and then secondly how you came to the conclusion that something is orbiting something else. Okay. From that sounds good. Okay. So there's a spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum. Yes. And let's just think of the rainbow of visible light. Right. Roy G. Biv. Right? Yep. So red's on one end, blue's towards the other. Yeah. Now this spectrum continues in each other direction. The red end keeps going to radio waves and the blue end keeps going to x-rays and gamma rays and stuff like that. Yep. But let's just think of one section because that's where the red and blue comes from. It doesn't really matter Mm -hmm. where you are on the electromagnetic spectrum as long as you're going in the red direction, which is a longer wavelength, or the blue direction, which is a shorter wavelength. Right. So... If something's coming towards you, then that means that as it's emitting light or any other sort of electromagnetic radiation, the wavelength of the radiation is affected by the velocity of the object. Right. So, kind of like the doppelganger effect for light. You're so thinking the Doppler effect. You're thinking the Doppler effect? <laughs> doppelganger effect. Oh is my not god, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> You're thinking of the Doppler effect, but yes, exactly. So the Doppler effect is... <laughs> well, this is the, it is the Doppler. It is the Doppler effect. It's yes. exactly yeah, right. the same the thing. Effect. We just think of the Doppler effect mostly in terms of sound. Right. So the Doppler effect is most commonly observed when a train goes... Back past you. Or, yeah. Right, because the sound is getting compressed. Exactly. And the then sound stretched. waves are getting compressed and stretched. And it's the exact same thing with light waves. Yeah. Is they're getting compressed as something moves towards you. Or stretch as it moves away. Yeah. Which is how I figured out that one thing is orbiting the other. Because in that semicircle when it's moving away, the waves are getting stretched. And in the semicircle where it's moving closer, the waves are getting closer. Right. So when the object's so moving away. So away is red and, yeah. and yeah, closer exactly. is blue. Closer is blue. Okay. Yeah. And Jesse, you mentioned that quasars are standardly red shifted because the expansion of the universe. Yes. That is, I mean, that's how we know the universe is expanding as we looked around at everything around us. And we're like, hey, everything's red shifted. Meaning everything's moving away from us. The Mm -hmm. only way to explain that is that space itself is expanding. Right. So, I mean, the common misconception there is redshift in the universe is not due to things moving away from us. It's due to literally the space in between us and other things expanding. Yeah. So as the waves, those light waves are traveling to us through space, literally the space they're traveling through is expanding. And that's how that wave gets stretched and redshifted. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Nailed it. That That's exactly it. And okay. so, yeah, you reached the same conclusion that they did, which is that they were observing the Doppler effect. They were seeing this redshift and blue shift. And that meant that what they were looking at is something involving an orbit. And what they figured out very cleverly is that what they were looking at was a pair of black holes orbiting each other Whoa. very tightly. Whoa. So that's insane. These are two black holes. That's crazy. Each other. Are they if they ever combine are they getting closer slowly? Oh yes they are and that is where we're going with this. Ooh. This is really really cool cosmic oh, stuff. Oh wow. Okay, yeah. cool. So they had two leading theories as to why we were seeing this the pulsing light mm-hmm. from the orbit yeah. because keep in mind the the black holes are orbiting each other. But that has a single quasar associated with it, right? Because they're mm-hmm. so close together, that their accretion disks are effectively combining. There's only one quasar that we observe. Sure. Right? One light source. Yeah. So the two leading theories that they had were one was the warped or lopsided accretion disk, which is that these two black holes are orbiting each other and that the accretion disk around them is favoring one side in terms of where most of the mass is. 
Okay. And that is spinning around the whole unit, the whole system of the two black holes. Mm-hmm. That when that approaches our side of it, we see it as brighter. Right. And the second theory was that because of the way that the black holes were orbiting each other, they created two plasma jets coming out from between the two of them, either direction. What? Kind of like a lighthouse spinning and a light rotating out from both sides. Oh, okay. So basically that these plasma jets were firing out from both sides. And that what we're seeing is every time one of the jets comes around, it's looking better. So this is some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, Either way, there's absolutely. a lot of crazy stuff going on. Yeah. So this was a groundbreaking discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked like the two black holes might even collide at some point, which got people very excited. Yes. Because <clears throat> this is the closest we've ever seen black holes by far. Sure. So let's fast forward to now because that was 2014. Remember I told you to go wait, way, way back wait, to 2014. Wait, wait. It's, it's <clears throat> the closest, closest we've seen black holes colliding? It's the closest we've seen black holes together. What? We, we've never seen black holes this close to each other before. Oh, to, to each other. Yes. Not to us. No, not to us. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, These are pretty far away from us. These are very far away Far from closer us. is the one that we think is in the center of, of the our Milky galaxy, Way. Right? Yes, that's the what I was thinking. Way. Yes. Um, these are, I think I said 3.5 billion light years away, right? Yeah, yeah. They're so really far away. Very far away. Yeah, okay. Um, but they're the closest that we've seen two black holes to each other, which Got is it. a very exciting yeah. prospect. <clears throat> so, fast forward to now. There's some new research out of Columbia University, and they've done a couple very cool things. Okay. First off, they've backed up the findings of the first study. And pretty much confirmed that what they've observed is true. Okay. They've also collected a lot more data. One of the crazy things that they've discovered is that those two black holes are between 0.007 and 0.017 parsecs apart. Okay. How far is a parsec? So that's the thing. I thought parsec was a made-up Star Trek word. <laughs> I to be, that to too. be totally you're, honest, you're thinking Star Wars because Han Solo said, "I made the Kessel Run in right. less than that's okay. exactly twelve parsecs." Yeah. Although that implies that parsec is a unit of time, yeah. but it's actually a unit of distance. So it is a unit of distance. I looked it up, <laughs> and yeah. it actually means the parallax of one arc second. Yes, and it's referring to. Um, you know what? I'm not even gonna say. Look it up. Look it up on Wikipedia if you're curious, because it's a complex explanation. It's second. also like one of the coolest things that ever. But it's really ridiculous. cool. But it's, it's a really cool idea. It's complex, but it's so cool. It's a, it, it's about parallax. It's about how much. But that's what it okay. is. It's how much the oh, thing can moves. We, can we explain this? Can we explain this? Okay, it's you so explain cool. quickly. Explain par- okay. parallax. So parallax is like if you stick your finger right in front of your nose and you close one eye, and then. You close the other eye and just like yeah, switch yeah, which yeah. eye is closed. Yeah. You notice the thing behind your finger changes. Right. We can do that with the Earth too, with the entire Earth, because the Earth is going in an orbit around the Sun. So when the Earth is on one side, the and let's let's say in this case your eyes are the Earth in its two positions on its two extremes on either side of its orbit, and your finger is a nearby star, and then the background you're looking at is a faraway star. So what we can do is look at how the background behind a specific star changes with the Earth being on one side of the sun or the other side of the sun. And this is how we measure distances from us to other things. It's pretty simple trigonometry from that point. And by simple, I mean like a grade six student could do it. So there you go. Parsec stands for the parallax of one arc second. And an arc second, a degrees divided into 60 arc minutes yes each arc minute is divided into 60 arc seconds so this is just a very 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 small angle okay. 360 degrees in a circle 60 arc minutes in each degree 60 arc seconds in each arc minute so for a very small amount of movement how much parallax do you have? so the, the 0.007 to 0.017 parsecs works out to approximately one light week if that makes 
if that's a better way for you to think so of it. So the distance that a light can travel in a week. Yes. Okay. In other words, they're really close together. Yeah. Way closer than we even thought. Yeah. Like bonkers close. That's insane. So the previous closest known black holes to each other were 20 light years apart. And now we wow. have a pair that is a light week apart that we found. Wow. This is incredible. Also, they narrowed down the predicted crash time for the two black holes to collide with each other yeah. to about 100,000 years from now. Oh, it's not in my lifetime. It's not in my it's not in I'm really of our bummed lifetimes. about that. And, you know, that is a long time for humans. Of course, it's nothing for stellar objects. But no. just, just for scale, it's thought that the first Homo sapiens migrated out of Africa between 50,000 and 100,000 years ago. Yeah. So we, we are actually talking a human time scale here. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's like... That's very soon. Yeah. Right? It's okay, so what happens oh. What happens when these things collide? Well, this is the thing. Some of these researchers think that this might be the first time when these, when these black holes collide that we might be able to observe Einstein's theoretical gravitational waves. Oh. So back when Einstein did the, the general, rel- general theory of relativity, he came up with the idea that gravitational waves could exist. He theorized mm-hmm. this, and we have yet to observe them. Yeah, there have been a lot of people in recent years yeah. who've said they might observe them, or there have been a lot of controversial yeah. observations Those have of lost them. credibility a little bit lately. Yeah, there's a place in Antarctica, isn't there, that's just devoted to, like, looking, looking for them in space? Yeah. Yeah. So these waves are basically gravitational waves that distort space and time right so like that whole idea that gravity is like like the marble and the the, exactly piece of fabric and it's like you're kind of moving towards the thing that's lower but then that would just the fabric would be waves rippling yeah okay rippling out and then that would distort space and time it's something that we have yet to observe, and the theory is that my brain hurts. massive gravitational <laughs> waves could be released by these these black holes colliding, uh, which would be very very cool. So, I mean, that's basically all. How all massive? We've seen from like, this. would we be able to experience them? We, I don't think we'd be able to perceive them, but we'd be more likely to be able to detect them. Yeah, I did a lot yeah, of searching. Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't feel these ourselves. Yeah. We wouldn't like feel a disturbance in the force. No. Let's, let's no. be clear but, about that. But we would be compressing and expanding through space and time. Our own bodies would be as we yeah. came into contact with them. We just probably wouldn't notice that. Right, like a tiny paper boat on like a giant wave. But we're ex- we're compressing and expanding every day like Jupiter moves around yes. or we get a little closer to the sun. Yeah. Like there are there are definitely like larger we're gravitational forces. We're feeling changes of gravity all the time. Yeah. But yeah, like this isn't something that we would necessarily notice yeah also expansion in space and time is not necessarily something that we would perceive basically that's all we've got from this study right it's just yeah this is a bunch of really cool new information we have uh, about some black holes that are doing some pretty incredible stuff pretty close to each other yeah and i mean it's gonna be very interesting to watch and observe what happens with this they are adamant that we're gonna learn a lot more by watching for longer and getting more data that's awesome which is great news that's so awesome so We'll definitely keep watching this Quasar, PG-13, <laughs> and as we've so lovingly dubbed it, yeah. and, see, and see what happens. I, think, I just think this is incredibly cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this week. We've got links to all the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes. Those are at, as always, doubleblindscience.com. 
hope you've enjoyed our adventure into this week's science news. So check back next week. We have two new and exciting stories for you, as usual. What do you think of our podcast? Send us an email, stories at doubleblindscience.com. You can also use that if you've got something you want us to cover. If you've seen something in the news you want to explain just a little bit better. We're also on Twitter, at DoubleBlindSci, Facebook, and we're in real life too it's really not hard to get a hold of us it's we're very available like it's not like we're busy these guys on the street you go hey hey guys to get us into discussions about almost anything actually particularly just just go up to jesse and 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 just you need to say that you need to say these words interstellar should have won best picture it it should not have there's no that's not even that's not even that's like not even no no no, that's ridiculous though right like you're not (laughs) see you next week it's not (laughs) it's so bad it's so bad but it's like it's 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 embarrassing. I was so I was so I feel so let down by that movie. That's what it is. It's not even that I it's not even that I hate it or it's a bad movie. It's that I'm not even a rant about it. I just I hate I felt so let down by Christopher Nolan. I was so excited it was gonna be a movie about humanity and and chasing the stars and like blah 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 and looking for you know what just I just I felt so let down. I felt so let down by that movie. I didn't say it, so I don't know what you're gonna say about. I just felt so betrayed.